0: For the Love of Reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack and special guests Kate Magruder and Nicole Phillips-Rakes. We believe that the best poems are best heard out loud, really heard, listened to, And the we, in this case, being myself and my friends and colleagues... Nicole. And... Kate. And so, for the love of reading poetry, we are going to read for you... A
1: smattering. A
2: scattershot.
1: A smorgasbord. A
2: random splatter of poems, old and modern. Poems are,
0: after all, really are and always have been, from time immemorial... Just another way of telling stories, the word poetry comes from a Greek word meaning I create. Mm. In ancient Greece, four of the nine muses, the goddesses who ruled over the arts and sciences and offered both inspiration and blessing to those who followed those paths, four
1: of these nine were dedicated solely to the arts of poetry. Euterpe was the muse of lyric poetry. Calliope was the muse of epic poetry.
2: Erato was the muse of love poetry. And
0: Polyhymnia was the muse of sacred poetry. Their father was Zeus, and their mother was Memosyne, the goddess of memory, who herself was the daughter of Gaia, or Mother Earth.
2: Poetry was born as a spoken art. The earliest poems were memorized and recited or sung. They were oral histories, instructions for everyday activities, love songs, and mythic tales. The charm and power of rhyme, rhythm, and the magic of the human voice make a long story easier
1: to remember and to retell. And, because they had been memorized, transmitted, and treasured throughout cultures and for generations. Poems were the first imaginative works to be transcribed, literally written down and turned into something to be read. Poems appear in all the earliest records of every written language. Poetry is the ancestor of all written literature.
0: So we're offering to you and to the muses poems we love for all kinds of different reasons. To begin with, here's a group of poems that seem recognizably straightforward, perfectly simple, and simply descriptive, which start from a daily ritual, and then they reach deeper. We feel that these are our modern, sacred poetry, and therefore, their muse is polyhymnia. For example, a perfect day, Published in the Humboldt Times in 1899. Grandmother, on a winter day, milked the cows and fed them hay, and slopped the hogs and saddled the mule
2: and got the children off to school. Did a washing, mopped the floors,
1: washed the windows and did some chores cooked a dish of home-dried fruit, pressed her husband's Sunday suit, swept the parlor, made the bed, baked a dozen loaves of bread,
0: split some firewood, lugged it in, enough to fill the kitchen bin, cleaned the lamps and put in oil, stewed some apples about to
2: spoil, churned the butter, baked a cake, then exclaimed, for heaven's sake, the calves have got out of the pen,
1: went out and chased them in again. Gathered eggs, locked the stable, back to the house to set the table, cooked a supper that was delicious. Afterwards, she washed the dishes, fed the cat, sprinkled the clothes, mended a basket full of hose,
0: opened the organ, and began to play. When when you come to the end of a perfect day.
1: Mrs. Kessler by Edgar Lee Masters Mr. Kessler, you know, was in the Army, and he drew $6 a month as a pension and stood on the corner talking politics, or sat at home reading Grant's memoirs, and I supported the family by washing. Learning the secrets of all the people from their curtains, counterpanes, shirts, and skirts, for things that are new grow old at length. They're replaced with better, or none at all. People are prospering or falling back. And rents and patches widen with time. No thread or needle can pace decay. And there are stains that baffle soap. And there are colors that run in spite of you, blamed though you are for spoiling a dress. Handkerchiefs, napery have their secrets. The laundress life knows all about it. And I, who went to all the funerals held in Spoon River, swear I never saw a dead face without thinking it looked like something washed and ironed.
2: Lucinda Matlock by Edgar Lee Masters I went to the dances at Chandlerville and played Snap Out at Winchester. One time we changed partners, driving home in the moonlight of middle June, and then I found Davis. We were married and lived together for 70 years, enjoying, working, raising the 12 children, eight of whom we lost ere I had reached the age of 60. I spun, I wove, I kept the house, I nursed the sick, I made the garden, and for holiday, rambled over the fields where sang the larks, And by Spoon River gathering many a shell, and many a flower, and medicinal weed. Shouting to the wooded hills, singing to the green valleys. At ninety-six I had lived enough, that is all, and passed to a sweet repose. What is this I hear of sorrow and weariness, anger, discontent, and drooping hopes? Degenerate sons and daughters, life is too strong for you. It
1: takes life to love life. Song of the Clothesline by Devereaux Baker Sometimes I think I can restore order to my universe by hanging laundry on the clothesline in my backyard. I try to remember that clean lines should fit together just so, you know, towels with towels and little things with other little things. Don't mix up the jeans with the panties because for some reason that shouldn't be done. But later all day I can look out and see the clothes drying in the wind and sometimes feel the water lifting back out into the air and the air filling itself with this wet just from my washed clothes. And for a moment, the world is not so strange. And there is this song of cotton drying in the wind to get me through to the other side of night. Sometimes it is all so seamless as velvet to the touch, as the moles I used to trap but now pray will escape, just as I pray the jays won't eat the dog food the boys leave out as bait so they can shoot them from the living room window. <laughs> Laundry hanging on my clothesline, is my sacred place, my prayer wheel, my wish for the silence on the grass to rise and come inside me, to wash out the unnamed things that haunt and roam and are so frightened of the shapes of these clean clothes that sometimes they disappear into tiny lights, flickering behind my eyelids, firing blue and green and yellow. And when I open my eyes, I have been saved by my clothes hanging so sturdy on my backyard line.
2: You have just heard two pieces from Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology and Song of the Clothesline by Devereaux Baker. Here is Death of a Hired Man by Robert Frost. Mary sat musing on the lamp flame at the table, waiting for Warren. When she heard his step, she ran on tiptoe down the darkened passage to meet him in the doorway with the news and put him on his guard. Silas' is back. She pushed him outward with her through the door and shut it after her. Be kind, she said. She took the market things from Warren's arms and set them on the porch then drew him down to sit beside her on the wooden steps. When was I ever anything but kind to him? But I'll not have the fellow back, he said. I told him so last haying, didn't I? If he left then, I said, that ended it. What good is he? Who else will harbor him at his age for the little he can do? What help he is, there's no depending on. "'Off he goes, always, when I need him most. "'He thinks he ought to earn a little pay, "'enough at least to buy tobacco with, "'so he won't have to beg and be beholden. "'All right, I say. "'I can't afford to pay any fixed wages, "'although I wish I could. "'Someone else can, then someone else will have to. "'I shouldn't mind his bettering himself "'if that was what it was.' You can be certain, when he begins like that, there's someone at him trying to coax him off with pocket money. In haying time, when any help is scarce. In winter, he comes back to us. I'm done. Shh. Not so loud. He'll hear you, Mary said. I want him to. He'll have to sooner late. He's worn out. He's asleep beside the stove. When I came up from Rouse, I found him here, huddled against the barn door, fast asleep. A miserable sight, and frightening, too. You needn't smile. I didn't recognize him. I wasn't looking for him. And he's changed. Wait till you see. Where did you say he'd been? He didn't say. I dragged him to the house and gave him tea, and tried to make him smoke. I tried to make him talk about his travels. Nothing would do. He just kept nodding off. What did he say? Did he say anything? But little. Anything. Mary, confess he said he'd come to ditch the meadow for me. Warren. But did he? I just want to know. Of course he did. What would you have him say? Surely you wouldn't grudge the poor old man some humble way to save his self-respect. He added, if you really care to know, he meant to clear the upper pasture, too. That sounds like something you have heard before. Warren, I wish you could have heard the way he jumbled everything. I stopped to look two or three times, He made me feel so queer to see if he was talking in his sleep. He ran on Harold Wilson. You remember, the boy you had in haying four years since. He's finished school and teaching in his college. Silas declares you'll have to get him back. He says they, too, will make a team for work. Between them, they will lay this farm as smooth. The way he mixed that in with other things. He thinks young Wilson a likely lad, though daft on education. You know how they fought all through July under the blazing sun, Silas up on the cart to build the load, Harold along beside to pitch it on. Yes, I took care to keep well out of earshot. Well, those days trouble Silas like a dream. You wouldn't think they would. How some things linger... Harold's young college boy's assurance piqued him. After so many years, he still keeps finding good arguments he sees he might have used. I sympathize. I know just how it feels to think of the right thing to say too late. Harold associated in his mind with Latin. He asked me what I thought of Harold saying he studied Latin, like the violin, because he liked it. (laughs) That an argument. He said he couldn't make the boy believe he could find water with a hazel prong, which showed how much good school had ever done him. He wanted to go over that. But most of all, he thinks if he could have another chance to teach him how to build a load of hay. I know that's Silas' one accomplishment. He bundles every forkful in its place and tags and numbers it for future reference so he can find and easily dislodge it in the unloading. Silas does that well. He takes it out in bunches like big birds' nests. You never see him standing on the hay he's trying to lift, straining to lift himself. He thinks if he could teach him that, he'd be some good, perhaps, to someone in the world. He hates to see a boy the fool of books. Poor Silas so concerned for other folk and nothing to look backward to with pride and nothing to look forward to with hope. So now and never any different. Part of a moon was falling down the west, dragging the whole sky with it to the hills. Its light poured softly in her lap. She saw it and spread her apron to it. She put out her hand among the harp like morning glory strings, taut with the dew from garden bed to eaves, as if she played unheard some tenderness that wrought on him beside her in the night. Warren, she said, he has come home to die. You needn't be afraid he'll leave you this time. Home, he mocked gently. Yes. What else but home? It all depends on what you mean by home. Of course, he's nothing to us any more than was the hound that came a stranger to us out of the woods, worn out upon the trail. Home is the place where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. I should have called it something you somehow haven't to deserve. Warren leaned out and took a step or two, picked up a little stick and brought it back and broke it in his hand and tossed it by. Silas has better claim on us, you think, than on his brother. Thirteen little miles, as the road winds, would bring him to his door. Silas has walked that far, no doubt, today. Why didn't he go there? His brother's rich. Somebody, director in the bank, "'He never told us that. "'We know it, though. "'I think his brother ought to help, of course. "'I'll see to that if there is need. "'He ought of right to take him in, and might be willing to. "'He may be better than appearances, "'but have some pity on Silas. "'Do you think if he'd had any pride in claiming kin "'or anything he looked for from his brother, "'he'd keep so still about him all this time? "'I wonder what's between them.' I can tell you, Silas is what he is. We wouldn't mind him, but just the kind that kinsfolk can't abide. He never did a thing so very bad. He don't know why he isn't quite as good as anyone. W- worthless though he is, he won't be made ashamed to please his brother. I can't think Si ever hurt anyone. No, but he hurt my heart the way he lay and rolled his old head on that sharp-edged chair back. He wouldn't let me put him on the lounge. You must go in and see what you can do. I made the bed up for him there tonight. You'll be surprised at him, how much he's broken. His working days are done, I'm sure of it. I'd not be in a hurry to say that. I haven't been. Go, look, see for yourself. But Warren... Please remember how it is. He's come to help you ditch the meadow. He has a plan. You mustn't laugh at him. He may not speak of it, and then he may. I'll sit and see if that small sailing cloud will hit or miss the moon. It hit the moon. Then there were three there, making a dim row. The moon, the little silver cloud, and she... Warren returned, too soon, it seemed to her, slipped to her side, caught up her hand, and waited. Warren? she questioned. Dead was all he answered. you've
0: just heard Kate read Death of a Hired Man by Robert Frost. This is The Trees Are Down by Charlotte Mew. And he cried with a loud voice, hurt not the earth neither the sea nor the trees. Revelation. They're cutting down the great plane trees at the end of the gardens For days, there's been the grate of the saw, the swish of the branches as they fall, the crash of the trunks, the rustle of trodden leaves, with the whoops and the woes, the loud, common talk, the loud, common laughs of the men above it all. I remember one evening of a long past spring, turning in at a gate, getting out of a cart, and finding a large dead rat in the mud of the drive, I remember thinking, alive or dead, a rat was a godforsaken thing. But at least in May, that even a rat should be alive. The week's work here is as good as done. There's just one bough on the roped bowl in the fine gray rain, green and high and lonely against the sky, down now. And but for that, if an old dead rat did for a moment unmake the spring, I might never have thought of him again. It is not for a moment the spring is unmade today. These were great trees, It was in them from root to stem. When the men with the whoops and the woes have carted the whole of the whispering loveliness away, half the spring, for me, will have gone with them. It is going now, and my heart has been struck with the hearts of the plains. Half my life it has beat with these in the sun, in the rains, in the march wind, the May breeze, in the great gales that came over to them, across the roofs from the great seas. There was only a quiet rain when they were dying. They must have heard the sparrows flying and the small creeping creatures in the earth where they were lying. But I all day heard an angel crying, hurt not the
2: trees. Summer Fog by Patricia Olive Karsh. I have always lived by the ocean, known these damp days when fog slips up the rivers and creeps between the trees, and we move like prisoners of the heavy sky. Sometimes at sunset, fog slides back into the sea. I hurry away alone as if to some forbidden pleasure and wait, scarcely breathing, pinned between earth and naked sky for the passing of the sun. Again and again, day after day, I crave this drama, this embrace, this light which flares, then fades into the slow, deep breath
1: of evening. This next section is a bouquet of short poems, if you will, composed of lyrical sprigs of style and whimsy, full blooms of regret and delight, and colorful splashes of humor to tie it all together, surely offerings fit for the goddess Euterpe. To begin, here is First Fig by Edna St. Vincent Millay. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But, ah, oh, my foes and, oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. <laughs> Observation by Dorothy
0: Parker. If I don't drive round the park, I'm pretty sure to make my mark. If I'm in bed each night by ten... I may get my looks back again. If I abstain from fun and such, I'll probably amount to much. But I shall stay the way I am
1: because I do not give a damn. (laughs) Songs of Shattering by Edna St. Vincent Millay The first rose on my rose tree budded, bloomed, and shattered during sad days when, to me, nothing mattered. Grief of grief has drained me clean. Still, it seems a pity. No one saw. It must have been very pretty.
2: (laughs) So we'll go no more a-roving by Lord Byron. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night. Though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast. And the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon.
0: Recuerdo by Edna St. Vincent Millay. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable. But we looked into a fire, we leaned across a table, we lay on a hilltop underneath the moon and the whistles kept blowing and the dawn came soon. We were very tired, we were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry and you ate an apple. And I ate a pear from a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went wan, and the wind came cold, And the sun rose dripping a bucketful of gold. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head and bought a morning paper, which neither of us read, and she wept, God bless you, for the apples and the pears, and we gave her all our money, but our subway
2: fares. Inventory by Dorothy Parker Four be the things I am wiser to know, idleness, sorrow, a friend, and a foe, Four be the things I'd been better without. Love, curiosity, freckles, and doubt. Three be the things I shall never attain. Envy, content, and sufficient champagne. Three be the things I shall have till I die.
1: Laughter, and hope, and a sock in the eye. Some poems are epic in nature. Tales of adventure and heroism, which contained characters and plot that could rival today's most thrilling movies and theatrical plays. Long before the internet, television, and even radio, the home parlor was the stage and source of nearly all one's entertainment. Calliope, perhaps the best known of all the muses, no doubt had a hand in crafting this famously popular 1907 epic. The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Surface. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that could make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they did ever see was that night on the marge of Lake La Barge I cremated Sam McGee. Now, Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why, he left his home in the south to roam around the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell though he'd often say in his homely way that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold, through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close, then the lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. And that very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed, and the stars o'erhead were dancing heel and toe, he turned to me and, Cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. "'Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no, "'and then he says with a sort of moan, "'It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold "'till I'm chilled clean through the bone. "'You taint being dead. "'It's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. "'So I want you to swear that foul or fair, "'you'll cremate my last remains.' A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the streak of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried horror-driven with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of a promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, you may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you to cremate those last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were dumb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathe that thing. And every day that Quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went, though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. The trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. (laughs) Till I came to the marge of Lake LaBarge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a trice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then, here, said I, with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared, such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was I see cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear. But the stars came out, and they danced about ere again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said... I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heat of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said... Please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their. Secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they did ever see was that night on the marge of Lake La Barge, I cremated Sam McGee.
2: And you have just heard Nicole read The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. Now, what can we say about love poems, those sacred to the muse Erato. They come in all shapes and sizes and tones and colors. They sneak up on you when you're not looking and grab your heart or maybe your throat and whisper, this is true. You've felt this. I'm not letting you go until you read me out loud. Patterns
0: by Amy Lowell. I walk down the garden paths and all the daffodils are blowing and the bright blue squills. I walk down the patterned garden paths in my stiff brocaded gown with my powdered hair and jeweled fan. I too am a rare pattern as I wander down the garden paths. My dress is richly figured, and the train makes a pink and silver stain on the gravel and the thrift of the borders, just a plate of current fashion, tripping by in high-heeled ribbon shoes, not a softness anywhere about me, only whalebone and brocade, and I sink on a seat in the shade of a lime tree, for my passion wars against the stiff brocade the daffodils and squills flutter in the breeze as they please and i weep for the lime tree is in blossom and one small flower has dropped upon my bosom and the splashing of water drops in the marble fountain comes down the garden paths the dripping never stops underneath my stiffened gown is the softness Of a woman bathing in a marble basin, a basin in the midst of hedges grown so thick she cannot see her lover hiding, but she guesses he is near, and the sliding of the water seems the stroking of a dear hand upon her. "'What is summer in a fine brocaded gown? "'I should like to see it lying in a heap upon the ground, "'all the pink and silver crumpled up on the ground.' I would be the pink and silver as I ran along the paths and he would stumble after, bewildered by my laughter. I should see the sun flashing from his sword hilt and the buckles on his shoes. I would choose to lead him in a maze along the patterned paths, a bright and laughing maze for my heavy-booted lover till he caught me in the shade and the buttons of his waistcoat bruised my body as he clasped me aching, melting, unafraid, with the shadows of the leaves and the sun drops and the plopping of the water drops all about us in the open afternoon. I am very like to swoon with the weight of this brocade, for the sun sifts through the shade. Underneath the fallen blossom, in my bosom, is a letter I have hid. It was brought to me this morning by a rider from the Duke. Madam, we regret to inform you that Lord Hartwell died in action Thursday Sunday night. As I read it in the white morning sunlight, the letters squirmed like snakes. Any answer, madam, said my footman. No, I told him. See that the messenger takes some refreshment? No. No answer. And I walked into the garden, up and down the patterned paths in my stiff, correct brocade. The blue and yellow flowers stood up proudly in the sun, each one. I stood upright too, held rigid to the pattern by the stiffness of my gown. Up and down I walked, up and down. In a month he would have been my husband. In a month, here, beneath this lime, we would have broke the pattern. He for me and I for him. He is colonel, I as lady on this shady seat. He had a whim that sunlight carried blessing. And I answered, It shall be as you have said. Now he is dead. In the summer and in the winter, I will walk up and down the patterned garden paths in my stiff, brocaded gown. The squills and daffodils will give place to pillared roses and to asters and to snow. I shall go up and down in my gown gorgeously arrayed, boned and stayed. And the softness of my body will be guarded from embrace by each button, hook, and lace. For the man who should loose me is dead, fighting with the Duke in Flanders in a pattern called a war. Christ, what are patterns
2: for? love demands by susan mader there is no arrangement to love no orderly tableau not even a moment of stasis where we can stop and breathe keep moving love demands and nudges us up from our cushions out from under our feather beds into the waiting world a pileated woodpecker stands aslant our favorite tree needing to be seen. A gray squirrel is loose in the foliage. The grass has greened into sight while we slept. Brambles abound. Even an early jasmine winks, and something glistens over there, a rogue beetle in its patent leather case. Nothing fits particularly, this belonging next to that. No tree is wed to sky, or web to bush. No crocus needs the brown crust of earth it's broken through. That crooked watering can with its ring of rust is unconcerned with the shadow it casts. What purpose to the peeling garden hose that bellies its way toward the apple tree? It is up to us to make connections, to see how the twig loves the tree, the bud the twig, the unborn bloom the bud. And from there, we'll learn the rest. The snake in the tree, its hiss, and then the snap of the apple bitten. The tales to invent, to put sense to what won't stop dancing. Love says go, reach, live, and then hoists the sun up into day. It only wants our full attention. That's why it tugs at our blood the way it does, making it circles inside us. Listen, it won't give up. Only turn your head on the pillow. Look, something is reddening outside the window. Something else is growing ripe. The sky is lending us its light. Hurry, love says. Hurry, love says.
1: Hurry. Lullaby by C. L. Babcock If I could set you in the sun to melt your heart or take straight-edged thought and scrape the frost which darkens and dense snowflakes the ice blue of your eyes, would you see that I am standing in your limbs and in your living? I will never go away. I will never go away. I do not say I love you call you darling, bear your child. Our deepest care curls with us in the night. Time and time again is what will bring us to ourselves, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and even that I doubt. Do you understand that you pull me like a magnet? A feeling not unique, but certainly too rare to resist the humming power, and I clamp against your spirit with the elemental hope that you realize I am there. It isn't that I think I must be faithful to a pattern or love nobody else in order that you know I will never go away. I will never go away but that I will not cease from heading toward the center of our vacillating orbits to recognize with you the pool in which our hearts were first formed for the future and laid beneath our bones with silent singing voice. And if we both know where to find it and can swim there in an instant to lie upon our backs while the ancient rocking waves wash away our fear and fury, fill us full with love and courage. We'll be lucky in this life, and the water will lay. I will never go away. I will never go away.
0: John Anderson, my Joe, John, by Robert Burns. John Anderson, my Joe, John, when we were first acquainted, your locks were like the raven, and your bunny brow was brent. But now your brow is belled, John. Your locks are like the snow. But blessings on your frosty pow, John Anderson, my Joe. John Anderson, my Joe. John, we clam the hill together. And many a canted day, John, we had ain ain't another. Now we mon totter down, John, and hand in hand we'll go and sleep together at the foot, John Anderson,
2: my Joe. And for the sheer thrill of romance, adventure, sacrifice, and passion, The Highwayman
0: by Alfred Noyes. The wind was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. The road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor. And the highwaymen came riding, riding, riding. The highwaymen came riding up to the old inn door. He'd a French cocked hat on his forehead, a bunch of lace at his chin, a coat of the claret velvet, and breeches of brown doe skin. They fitted with never a wrinkle, his boots were up to the thigh, and he rode with a jeweled twinkle, his pistol butts a twinkle, his rapier hilt a twinkle, under the jeweled sky.
1: Over the cobbles he clattered and clashed in the dark inn-yard. He tapped with his whip on the shutters, but all was locked and barred. He whistled a tune to the window, and who should be waiting there but the landlord's black-eyed daughter, Bess, the landlord's daughter, plaiting a dark red love-knot into her long black hair. And dark in the dark old inn-yard, a stable wicket creaked. Where Tim the ostler listened, his face was white and peaked. His eyes were hollows of madness, his hair like moldy hay. But he loved the landlord's daughter, the landlord's red-lipped daughter. Dumb as a dog, he listened, and he heard the robber say, One kiss, my bonnie
2: sweetheart. I'm after a prize tonight, but I shall be back with the yellow gold before the morning light. Yet if they press me sharply and harry me through the day, then look for me by moonlight. Watch for me by moonlight. I'll come to thee by moonlight, though hell should bar the way. He rose upright in the stirrups. He could scarce reach her hand, but she loosened her hair in the casement. His face burnt like a brand as the black cascade of perfume came tumbling over his breast, and he kissed its waves in the moonlight. Oh, sweet black waves in the moonlight. Then he tugged at his rein in the moonlight and galloped away to the west. He did not
0: come in the dawning. He did not come at noon, and out of the tawny sunset before the rise of the moon, when the road was a gypsy ribbon looping the purple moor, a red coat troop came marching, marching, marching. King George's men came marching up to the old inn door. They said no word to the landlord. They drank his ale instead. But they gagged his daughter and bound her to the foot of her narrow bed. Two of them knelt at her casement with muskets at their side. There was death at every window and hell at one dark window. For Bess could see through
2: her casement the road that he would ride. They had tied her up to attention. "'with many a sniggering jest. "'They had bound a musket beside her "'with the muzzle beneath her breast. "'Now keep good watch,' and they kissed her. "'She heard the doomed man say, "'Look for me by moonlight. "'Watch for me by moonlight. "'I'll come to thee by moonlight, "'though hell should bar the way.' "'She twisted her hands behind her, "'but all the knots held good.' She writhed her hands till her fingers were wet with sweat or blood. They stretched and strained in the darkness, and the hours crawled by like years. Till now, on the stroke of midnight, cold on the stroke of midnight, the tip of one finger touched it. The trigger, at least, was hers. The tip of one finger touched it. She strove no more for the rest. Up she stood up to attention, with the muzzle beneath her breast. She would not risk their hearing, she would not strive again. For the road lay bare in the moonlight, blank and bare in the moonlight. And the blood of her veins in the moonlight
1: throbbed to her love's refrain. Had they heard it, the horse hoofs ringing clear? In the distance, were they deaf that they did not hear? Down the ribbon of moonlight, over the brow of the hill, the highwaymen came riding, riding, riding. The redcoats looked to their priming. She stood up, straight and still. In the frosty silence, In the echoing night, nearer he came and nearer. Her face was like a light. Her eyes grew wide for a moment. She drew one last deep breath. Then her finger moved in the moonlight. Her musket shattered the moonlight. Shattered her breast in the moonlight. And warned him with her death. He turned. He
2: spurred to the west. He did not know who stood, bowed with her head o'er the musket, drenched with her own blood. Not till the dawn he heard it, and his face grew grey to hear how best the landlord's daughter, the landlord's black-eyed daughter, had watched for her love in the moonlight and died in the darkness there. Back he spurred like a madman, shrieking a curse to the sky, with the white road smoking behind him and his rapier brandished high. Blood red were his spurs in the golden noon, wine red was his velvet coat, when they shot him down on the highway, down like a dog on the highway, and he lay in his blood on the highway with a bunch of lace at his throat.
0: And still of a winter's night, they say, when the wind is in the trees, when the moon is a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas, when the road is a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor, a highwayman comes riding, 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 a highwayman comes riding up to the old door. Over the cobbles he clatters and clangs in the dark inn yard. He taps with his whip on the shutters, but all is locked and barred. He whistles a tune to the window, and who should be waiting there but the landlord's black-eyed daughter, Bess, the landlord's daughter, plaiting a dark red love knot into her long black and that from nineteen oh six was The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes. And now, although he we have read for you only a tiny infinitesimal, barely even a quadrillionth of a drop of the <laughs> ocean of puppetry that humankind has been floating in since we learned to speak and learn to listen we must come to a conclusion. Mm. So we will read something from Walt Whitman, the Bard of America, the poet of democracy, and hear his instructions for how we each individually and collectively may in body and spirit become a poem in his preface to the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass. This is what you shall do. Love the earth and the sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks.
1: Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward the people.
2: Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown, or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful,
0: uneducated persons, and with the young, and with the mothers of
1: families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or
2: church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem
0: and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. And so with great thanks to my special guests and dear friends, Kate Magruder and Nicole Phillips-Rakes, that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading, Poems We Love. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack, with special thanks to Michael Ducharme for his expert and kind assistance. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales and is archived and available on the KZYX For the Love of Reading podcast on demand with the KZYX phone app or wherever you get your podcasts. And at lindapack.net, you will find information and links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading.